Well, thank you once again for joining us here at uh, Clean Dreams. And we're so happy to have a special guest today uh, just coming in to share his experience, strength, and hope. Once again, I'm going to ask that you pray for me. My name is Troy, and I am an alcoholic. And uh, sitting with us tonight, uh, I want to, before we get started, just thank Sean C. for sitting in as a producer and, and technical uh, wizard uh, for our podcast. And we're really extremely grateful to him. And um, also joining us today is Doug R. Uh, you know, one of the things that I know about Doug is that he is a he is a man in recovery and uh, a man of God. Um, more than that, he is a good friend, and uh, I'm so blessed to have you here with me today. You know, and uh, we've been walking this journey for a long time. You know, yeah. You know, we've gone through a lot of doors. We've helped a lot of alcoholics and a lot of addicts, and. Uh, We've stayed sober through it all, you know. So, of course, it makes sense for me to ask you to come and sit with us and uh, share your experience, strength, and hope. Um, before we get started, though, let's go ahead and just take a moment to invite he who presides over us all into everything that we do, and uh, in particular into this session today. We'll take a moment of silence, and, and then we'll... Uh, Go ahead and open it up with Doug. God, please grant me his serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, being in recovery is not a, an easy thing. You know, being an alcoholic or an addict, it might be easier to to, to drink or use than to uh, abstain. Because abstaining means I have to deal with life on its own terms. Abstaining means that even if I get angry, even if my heart gets broken, even if somebody says no to me, I still will not pick up a drink or a drug. That's what recovery is dealing with life on its own terms. And and this man, I've seen him go through good days, and I've seen him deal with life itself on bad days uh, without picking up a drink or a drug. So without any further ado, I give you Doug R. Thanks, Troy. I'm Doug, an alcoholic and an addict. I guess the way I look at it now, my story changes as I've stayed sober. I mean, it's the same, but how I view it has, has changed. Um, you know, for me, they, they talk about how the disease centers in our mind, and, and it took me a while to understand that. But if I look back over my life before I picked up alcohol and other substances, that disease was alive and well in my mind. And you hear some people say they, dro they drank themselves into a point where they became an alcoholic or addict. And for me, I think it, it started off at a young age. And, you know, my mom always described me as a, as a good kid and happy-go-lucky. And, and I remember certain things in my life where things kind of changed in that. And, and one of them was I was probably five or six years old, maybe even a little younger than that. My mom took me to the doctor, and back in those days, they gave you narcotics, and, and they gave me some cough syrup. And I remember to this day, the doctor looking at my mom saying, you got to be careful how much you give him in this stuff, and you got to watch him because it could, it could do, you know, it's a narcotic. And I took that stuff, and it didn't get me high, but it made me feel different. And I, I noticed after that, 
my behaviors became irritable, restless, and discontent. And I didn't understand why. And I noticed there was something different in my behaviors. Like things started bothering me in life. And I realized I didn't feel like I fit in and, and other things like that. And that was more of my thing in life when I was young was my thinking and how I always compared myself to everybody else, what they were doing and how they seemed to just deal with life a little better than I did. And, and the longer that went on, the more I reacted to life and didn't, and I realized like being sober now, I didn't have the tools to live life on life's terms. And that's where I struggled. And, and so my behavior was alcoholic, even as a child. And I say that is, so even as a as a child, my behaviors became dysfunctional. Um, I remember at a young age, you know, and I use this scenario, and, and Troy's probably heard this story. I was about six, seven years old, and I had a thing similar to a big wheel, and it was one of my favorite things to ride, and I got a rush from it. So I was addicted to riding that thing. And so one of the kids in the neighborhood rode it, and I let him ride it, but then he wouldn't give it back. And he told me he wasn't going to give it back. And so we argued back and forth, and where I say, and i sharing this is, this is my abnormal behavior. I picked up a brick and broke it on his back. He gave me my toy back. And, and that's how I ended up dealing with life, and that's not normal. And so kind of given in a pattern, I had an older brother that would let me sip his beers, and I loved the taste of alcohol. You hear people say they didn't like the taste of beer. I love the taste of the beer he gave me. And about eight years old, and I share this sometimes, is I got kicked out of my first college party when I was eight years old. And when I was a kid, I had some neighbors that took care of me. And they, my parents trusted them with me because for some reason they knew how to deal with my behaviors. Because I was hyperactive, ADHD, whatever you want to call it. They didn't diagnose this back then as that. But I was, my parents couldn't deal with me. And my neighbors seemed to be able to deal with me. So anyways... One of the girls I was in college, she would come home and, and she'd invite friends over. And they'd go pick up beer, Miller High Light. And I can remember that beer to this day. <laughs> kind of reminds me of my thinking. And we'd go to the liquor store and I got to pick up the beer, go put it on the counter. The counter. She'd pay for it. I'd take it to the car. And my job was to pop the beers open and pass the beers out. And my reward for that was I was allowed to take a sip. Well, the first couple times I did that, I would take a couple sips, pass it on, whatever. But by the third party that they had, I started chugging the beers. And I remember one time they gra started grabbing the beers away from me, and I got so bad they sent me home. And I actually had my first buzz when I was about eight years old off that beer. And if they didn't stop me, I probably would have gotten drunk. And I thought about that beer all the time. And uh, that's... That's where I understand now being sober a while is the disease centers in the mind because I have n normal friends out there as we drank and drugged, they didn't think about it after they were doing it. They didn't obsess on it like I did. And that was my whole pattern of life. And, you know, I didn't become a drunk at eight years old, but I became more dysfunctional in life as I got older. And then I found this magical solution that when I was about 12, 13 years old, that if I drank and I smoked weed, I didn't react to things as much. So that became my magical elixir, and that became how I dealt with life. And if you asked me at the time if I was an alcoholic or had an addiction to anything, I would have told you no. I did it because I'm cool and I like having fun with it.
but I use it as a tool to deal with life. And, I, and I'll never forget it. I was about 16 years old. I was walking down the street and I w- walked by Wendy's house. And I always liked Wendy and I knew Wendy liked me, but I just didn't know how to articulate that to her. And so I was kind of stoned out and smoking weed, walking by her house. But when I'm stoned, I can't talk as well. <laughs> and here I am, 16 years old, going, you know, if I had some rum with me and if I was drinking rum, I could go up and tell Wendy how I felt. That's alcoholic thinking. And, and I share all that is, is my life, I swore up and down I did what I did because I enjoyed it and I was having fun. And there was some fun in it. And we had wild parties and all these fun stuff. Uh, but I used it as my coping tool because I didn't know how to deal with stuff. And I felt like at some point in school, some other ki- kids went to school one day when I was homesick and they gave them the rule books of life. They didn't give it to me. And I'd watch other people just seem to function a lot better in life than I did. And so the more alcohol I used and other substances, the more I was able to deal with life. I I didn't react as much. I was calm. I can just handle things. But the problem is it stopped working. Then it would work. Then it wouldn't. You know, and then I'd play the game of volume. You know, or mix this, little of that, whatever it was. You know, don't do it here, do it here, these kind of things. And so what I didn't realize is my life was just becoming so obsessed in that. You know, I was probably 19 years old and I was dating this girl. And, you know, we drank together a little bit and we did some other substances once in a while together. And I was doing stuff all the time. And one day we're walking down the street of Waikiki and I'll never forget it. She looked at me and she goes, I just can't be with you anymore. I looked at her, why? And she said, because all you do is talk about drugs and alcohol. That's all you know. And I'm like, no, that's not true. I know all kind of other things in life. And she goes, yeah, no, you, you, you can have a conversation about other things, but you're just, that's all you ever really do is talk about drugs and alcohol, even when you're not doing it. And I was just like, I was floored by it. I told her she was wrong. We walked across the street, and by the time we got across the street, she looked at me and said, see, you did it again. I mentioned drugs and alcohol because I didn't know what else to talk about because it became – such a, an obsession for me as such a part of my life that it dictated everything I did. And, you know, and I hear people say, well, I, I drank and I did other substances and all these things. And I got to a point where my life was unmanageable when I went and got sober. And for me, I didn't do that. I just kept using and using and beating that dead horse because back then there wasn't a ton of other solutions. There was a mental hospital. They talked about that. And most people I know went off to prison or jail or they died. And so I just kept doing the same results. And for me, I went from having all this fun with it to where I saw there was something wrong and I couldn't, there I had periods of moments of clarity that I, I would sit there and I had it several different times. I remember once after junior prom, I'm sitting in my car and it was the night afterwards, I'm sitting there with some cocaine and had beer and I'm by myself, I'm 17 years old and sitting in this car and going, this is not probably, there's something wrong with this picture. You know, why am I sitting by myself on a rainy night doing cocaine? And, and prior to that, the night before, I almost killed the girl I took on the date. You know, people at the, at, at the prom were having fun and doing drugs, but we were just going crazy with it. And this girl never used drugs in her life prior to this. And I was giving her huge lines of cocaine, and and 
it could have killed her. And I didn't realize that until I got sober. But when I was sitting there that night, I knew there was something wrong. But I didn't know it was addiction. And, uh, and I knew something needed to change. But I was always trying to change the outside, not the inside. And so my life got to a point where you would think growing up in Hawaii, surfing, having all these funs, best time of your life. But I got to such a point, and I, it was depression, it was just true alcoholic behavior, that I didn't have a moment, a day of sobriety. And it got to a point where I was just miserable at life. And I watched everything I really cared about go away. And I couldn't stop it. And I was also addicted to, and not everybody can relate to this, but some people can. I was also addicted to the lifestyle of addiction. The sordid places it talks about in the big book. I mean, you know, and some people are not, right? Some people like just sitting at home, getting drunk, and just numbing out. But part of my addiction was that sordid lifestyle. And I shared the story, and Troy's heard the story probably a million times. You know, we went to Waikiki a lot, and there's some off-the-wall parties and good fun, and we got arrested one night. I can't remember what it was for, and there's a bunch of us were in the jail cell, and, you know, we got called our parents or did whatever. Some of us got – they let us go because there was nothing really to bust us on. But anyways, a couple weeks later, we were talking about partying, and my my friends went to the house because there was a pool table. They got a keg of beer. They're going to hang out. I said, let's go to Waikiki. This is the time of year all the tourist chicks are in town. You know, we can just get wild. And they're like, Doug, the last time we went down there, we got arrested. We're not going. Those are the hard drinkers. You know, they stayed at home. And I'm going. And I told them, and my friend Lee looked at me and he said, can you just not not go? And I made a commitment to him that I wasn't going to go. So I went and shot pool with them for a while. And I just stood around and just was boring as shit. You know, I just, this is not, this, I'm bored. Yeah, there's some pretty girls there and everybody's laughing, telling some jokes, getting drunk. But I just had to go. There's no chaos. Yeah, no, yeah. And so I, I took off to Waikiki. I can't even tell you how I got down there. I'm just thinking now, I don't even remember if I had a car then or not because I went through cars like, you know, people go through freaking gum yeah <laughs> i mean i seriously i mean it was just like i'd have a car wreck it whatever it was get put you know taken away or whatever and then i'd be i'd catch the bus or whatever it was or i'd hitchhike but i did all that to get to where i had to go to get what i needed and that was part of my addiction i remember and i'll never forget this i went to waikiki one night and all my friends thought i was insane that i wasn't just going to hang out with them and I had some cash in my pocket. I had some change in my pocket. And I rode the freaking city bus two hours to Waikiki. And you would have thought I pulled up in a freaking limousine. And here I've arrived, right? I was going to have this wild-ass time. And and I got drunk. I got high. And, you know, because we can get things, right? We can we manipulate the shit out of stuff. And so it was a wild night. But it wasn't what I thought, right? I ended up just passing out on the beach in Waikiki, waking up and taking the bus home. And it was just... I share that is is what it looked like in my mind was different from what reality was. It talks about in the doctor's opinion, our abnormal thinking becomes normal, and we can't differentiate the true from the false. And that's what my life became. And I knew it was there was something wrong about myself with that, but I still didn't change, and I couldn't go get help. 
And, you know, I even remember at one point I was dating this girl and, and she said, you know, Doug, ever since my dad got sober in AA, he stopped throwing stuff at my head. And the first thing I thought is like, I've never thrown anything at, at Heather's head. Why is she telling me this? But I liked her dad and he was cool as shit. But she described a monster to me. And so there was something cool about that. Um, and I did think on it. Yeah, I did throw a crack pipe against the wall and swear we were never going to smoke crack. And after we had this huge argument about smoking crack, then we jumped in the car and drove down and got new crack pipes. After we broke, <laughs> we made the commitment. We busted the crack pipes and we yelled and screamed like two, you know, crazy people in the middle of this out in the middle of the street of this apartment complex, probably scaring the crap out of everybody around us. And you know, then we went and got in the car and went and got new crack pipes because that's what we do, right? But anyways, I remember riding my bike around this church where I used to go drink looking for this AA meeting because there was a part of me wanted to see if I can change how I felt on the inside because I knew there's something wrong. I, I didn't want to be sober. I didn't want to stop not using, but I just wanted it to be different. And when I got there, God didn't think it was time because nobody was there. And so I, and I searched other things. I went to church events and I went to Boy Scouts and all these different things trying to, and I got kind of, I thought I was actually going to this church thing I went to before there where they talked about God a little bit. I started getting interested. I showed up there and the Boy Scouts were there. So I ended up joining the Boy Scouts for about two weeks and realized they didn't party. So I <laughs> didn't follow through with that one. But, you know, I share all that is I had some really cool passions in life and I, and I realized this in sobriety. So I loved boogie boarding and surfing and it was another adrenaline rush to me and I would spend two three four hours a day out in the ocean sometimes eight hours a day out in the ocean and some of it was kind of like an addiction because sometimes you didn't know if you were going to come back in or not because the waves are so big I'd be so scared to go out sometimes I would drink to get the courage to go out and then once I was out there I was addicted to the whole deal and it's hard to explain to somebody that hasn't had that experience but it was a true addiction to me. And um, anyways, because of my use of freebasing and drinking, my body deteriorated where I couldn't go out anymore. And I remember sitting on the beach one day watching my friends surf, and I just felt so lost because I couldn't go out. And I was only 19 years old. I felt just so just like I lost my best friend. Because my other best friend, drugs and alcohol, won. And uh, and I think about that sometimes. It's like the things I gave up for my addiction that I didn't know I was doing at the time because my disease in my mind didn't tell me I was giving those things up for my, for my addiction, if that makes sense or not. And, um, you know, and so as a normal alcoholic, you know, a hard drinker or a hard user would probably do something like stop getting high and stop drinking. You know, because it talks about it in the big book, right? Something was sufficient. I'll butcher this, but something strong enough will give them that encouragement enough to do it. You know, if it's a woman, if it's a passion, whatever it is, a job, they can stop. I, and I couldn't. And, you know, and I, and I look back on it. I just, I, and I was lucky. And I say I'm lucky because I was able to burn it to the ground. And I see people come in today that just haven't had a chance to burn it to the ground, you know, and they come in and they waffle around the program because the pain wasn't great enough. And I remember going in, you know, I had the, the 
great pleasure of being in front of the judge a dozen times or so. And, you know, that was part of my thing. And I would get arrested for all kind of wild stuff. And, and, and sometimes it was just not paying a bunch of tickets. You know, we talk about our life piles up on us becoming astonishingly difficult to solve. Like I had weird friends. They would get a speeding ticket and they would get the money to pay for it. If they had to borrow it from family, they got their paycheck, whatever it was. If the ticket was $250, they did strange shit. Like they'd show up at court with $250 and pay the, the 250 bucks. <laughs> You know, me, I would got, I'd get my paycheck and I would be like, okay, I got the paycheck. I know I got to go pay that or the police are going to come to the house eventually for it. So I would go and I, and, and I actually, this is part of my addiction and part of my game that I had made comments to my parents about. I would go and I know the ticket would be somewhere right around 250, but whatever the ticket was going to be, I'd figure out what it was going to be. And my mom would be like, cause she was a you know, enabler, she'd be like, well, how much is the ticket going to be this time? And I'd be like, you know, probably 250 bucks, you know? And, or if I thought it was going to be 200, I'd tell her 250. And then I would go in there and I might have some of my own money and I'd walk into court. And of course the judge would give me the fine and saying it's $250 or $200. And he would say, and this is where it'd feed into my disease. I had every intention at one point to pay the ticket to be that good person but that addiction would went over. And the minute he gave me an out, he would say, well, how much can, do you have all the money today or do you need help making payment plans? And you should never say that to an alcoholic addict because I had had the $250 in my pocket and the tickets 200. I would think for a second, I would pause and I would say, well, judge, I have a hundred dollars. Okay. When can you pay the rest? Okay, great. I'd go up to the clerk, hand her my hundred dollars, take the $150 and beeline it right to the, and I remember that I got a speeding ticket living, leaving the courthouse to go to the dope house with the money I just got so I can go get high. So I wasn't learning from my lessons. You would think, okay, he's not gonna go speed after this for just being in court for speeding. And those are the things I would do. And so, you know, when I finally hit a bottom in Hawaii, I hit one of my bottoms, it was, I was on 130 something pounds and, and I wasn't dying quick enough. And I didn't, at that point, really look at it as I wanted to die. I just didn't want to be me. And I wanted to have a different life. And the judge made a commitment to me. I had one enabler, too. My dad's attorney was a federal judge, a retired federal judge. And the first time I went in front of him was for assaulting a police officer. And my dad had me wear the little blue blazer. And I had the khaki pants on. But I had the hair down to my shoulders. Back then, I had hair. And... Uh, you know, I went in there and, and back then they make you stand in this long line. They had all the pews that you would sit in like a church, but then be, it was so packed in the courthouse, you would stand in line and they call your number up, come in and we're 20 people back. And all of a sudden the judge is like, Lou, is that you? It's the judge. That's my, my attorney. They're buddies. You know, and the guy, you know, the judge is like, is your wife still letting you fly planes? And they had this conversation and there's 250 people in the courtroom and everybody's looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? You know, he's in there. But anyway, so that, you know, the judge said, let's go in my chambers. And I had the police all come in there. They were going to get me put away for assaulting a police officer. And long story short, we had a conversation and I told my, and here's an alcoholic addict. I wanted to sue the police department, you know unfair, just punishment. You know, they were singling me out, all this shit. I got hit first by the police officer. I react, I punched him back and, you know, and, and they should be held accountable. And, you know, and, 
that judge asked me one important question is he said, are you going to still live in this town after this? He goes, because he goes, I tell you what, if you took this to court, you could probably sue the police department. But he goes, are you going to stay here? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I gather by kind of kid you are, you're probably going to get in some more trouble. And he goes, when do you want to get along with the police? And I, and I made it, it clearly. So long story short, all I did is pay $5 to the Ronald McDonald house, made amends to the police right there for my part in it. They made amends to me and they let it all go. Normal kid would say, thank you. Right. And never do and keep his ass clean. Cause I knew that the police knew who I was. They probably didn't like me that much, but I, my addiction wouldn't let me do that. And so I ended up in front of that judge a bunch of times. And at first he gave me a couple of breaks because he asked me, you're going to get Lou involved. And I said, yeah. And he's like, well, we'll just do this, pay 200 bucks and we'll let you go, whatever. So one day he finally said to me, if you ever come in front of me again, I don't care. I don't care who your lawyer is. And I'll call him and tell him to his face. He says, you come in here for spinning on the ground. You're doing one year in prison, not jail, prison. He goes, do you understand me? And I said, yeah. And I meant it. And I and I he put the fear of God in me. There's that consequence. And I had a fear that if I went in front of him again, that I would actually go to prison. And I didn't want to go to prison. And I made that commitment. I kept that commitment for about four hours. But that disease won over again. You know what I mean? It's just like all my other friends are like, stay out of trouble. Come hang with us. Come, you know. We'll go get some beer. We'll hang out at the house. We'll go at the beach. You can get all screwed up as you want. Just don't go out. Because they knew who I was. But I could not not go. And I ended up in front of him again. And he, he said, um, well, actually, I ended up in, because of the wreckage of the past, I had all this shit just coming at me. Unpaid traffic tickets, violations, possession, all these things that started building up. And so I ended up in, in front of him again in the courtroom and he was on vacation. And I think that was God giving me a message. And I made a commitment then too is, okay, I got a break. I'm not going to prison because that judge was dumbfounded. He's going, it says here I'm supposed to send you to a year in prison. But he goes, this is like $150 fine. He goes, I'm going to let the other judge deal with you on this. He goes, you pay the $150 today and you know we'll clear this up. But I didn't give him 150 bucks. I had the money. Once again, did all that shit. So anyways, I was smart enough the next time I went in, I joined the Army. And I joined the Army so I knew that when I went in front of that judge, and he asked me, and it was something minor that I couldn't even tell you what it was for. Went in front of him, he looked right at me, and he said, the first thing came, all he said to me was, he didn't even ask me if I was guilty or not guilty. He just looked at me and said, are you ready to go to prison? And I just said, yeah, I'm ready to go to prison, but I have one question. I just joined the Army. What am I supposed to do about that? And he was best. But he asked the, 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 the MPs were there because we were outside the military base in Hawaii, and so he asked them to double check. And they came back and said, yeah. And he said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. You go off and you go do your Army thing, and you don't come back to the state, I won't put you in prison. And that was a bottom for me. But the problem is, is I had untreated alcoholism and addiction, and I didn't have the spiritual tools to pick up and deal with it. And I went into the Army with a full commitment to be a different person and change. And I did some drinking in the, the Army and stuff. I had one time where I was in the hospital because I was sick, and, and they gave us a couple days off to go 
in town on the weekend and they said, we're going to drug test you when you come back. And I made a commitment not to do anything that they can drug test me for. We were in Louisville, Kentucky, and some guy walked by me and asked me if I wanted to buy hash. Bought hash and smoked it. And, you know, that's my addiction, right? Didn't get in trouble for that for some reason. God was looking out for me. See, and I share this is a lot of times as alcoholics, we don't see God working on our lives because there's a ton of times I should have been locked away. I should have been dead. I should have been drug tested, put in a federal penitentiary, you know, whatever the, the military does with you at that point for that stuff. But God was protecting me in that moment for whatever reason. He wanted me, he had a, a plan for me. And I got out of the army and I had, and I'll never forget this. There's certain things in my sobriety I remember as I stay sober and that the fog clears and I get real sobriety and real thinking of my life. And I look at my life and I'll never forget it as they handed me a one-way ticket to Hawaii. And I had a moment of clarity that if I went back, things never change. And I would be right back to where I was. And I had this one-way ticket. And how many people that we know, if someone handed you a one-way ticket to Hawaii, wouldn't use that ticket to go to Hawaii, right? Everything's better in Hawaii, so why not go? So anyways, I made a commitment to change. But here's part of my disease thinking in my mind. I got a letter. This is before emails. This is before all that fun stuff. I got a letter from a girl I used to run with in Hawaii, now living in Seattle. It was telling me there's a lot more jobs. Things are cheaper. But she did mention a code word in the letter that cocaine was cheaper there, alcohol was cheaper there. And so that was part of my, my deal why I went to Seattle. And I made a commitment, and I don't know if anybody can relate to this. I truly meant if you, like Adam used to always say, if you put him up to a lie detector test, he would pass the lie detector test. And the minute I, before I got on that plane, if you put me on a lie detector test and asked me, Doug, are you going to do that same lifestyle again? Are you going to chase it like you did? Are you going to freebase cocaine? Are you going to, I would have said no. I might smoke a little weed here and there. I might drink a little beer, but I'm done. I want a, I want a job. I want a life. I, and I meant it. And I got on the plane, but the problem is I took that first drink on the plane. And my thought press changed. And I saw that. I look back on it now. I saw that. By the third, fourth drink, there was a little Mexican cutie that was going into the Army. And I was leaving the Army. And we got in a conversation about staying the weekend in, in Dallas together. Plane landed. We were just transferring. She was going her direction. I was going mine. I was going to Seattle. And I had the bright idea to spend the weekend with her in Dallas. And God intervened. And God, you know, she was going in. She actually did her basic training. She was going to advanced training. So now she's a military property, government property. And when we went up to get her luggage off the plane, they said, we can't get her luggage off the plane. And she said, look, I don't want to go to prison. I like you and all. And I want to hang out the weekend with you. But you're not worth going to prison for. Because she was afraid if she didn't show up with her luggage and all this stuff, she would go to jail. So anyways, I stayed on the plane. But that's my mind. I probably still live in Texas today if we got off on that damn thing. Who knows, you know? But I made that commitment. But as I drank, as I, I drank more, I, I kept drinking on the plane, the more my disease kicked in and my thought rest kicked in. And I got off the plane. And I saw my friends, and it's still at that point when we walked out of that tournament, if you pulled me to the side and said, we want to give you a lie detector test, 
We know you're drinking, but are you going to do the drugs? And all? I would have told you no, and I would have meant it. But when I got in that car and we're pulling out of the parking lot and they handed me the crack pipe because they knew I had money on me. And that's how we that's how we roll as drug addicts. Right. We know. Right. And they were smart enough as drug addicts themselves. They knew I was landing there with money in my pocket. And so they handed me the crack pipe. And it took them well, a good two seconds to convince me to smoke it. And so I sure that is, is I had all these great intentions as we have as alcoholic and addicts. And I got off that plane, and two years later, I was down to 130-something pounds again. And this time, I was doing all kind of stuff I said I'd never do. Being involved in felony crimes. And I wasn't a tough guy, but I got involved in all kind of stuff I swore up and down I would never do again or be a part of the first time. And I did it to fuel my addiction. And this time, it was just a, going off like a cliff. There was no fun in it anymore. I maybe, I maybe had two or three days in the last two years of my drinking and drugging that there was any fun involved in it. It assisted of sitting in basements, freebasing cocaine, and then smoking just crack or whatever else we could find and drinking tons of alcohol all day long and doing a bunch of stuff. I couldn't keep a job, you know, and I had all these intentions to do so. I remember when I got there, I was 200 pounds in perfect shape. And two years later, I'm living in a dope house, and I always got to clarify what the dope house basement looks like because you think of a basement in Alfreda, Georgia, you got big screen TV, you got pool tables, you got, you know, the whole nine yards. You got about 2,000 square feet of, of fun. This dope house, I'm six feet one. I'd, I could, I'd have been down to get down the stairs to go into this place, and there's dirt, rocks, broken bottles, piss stained mattresses, and that's where I ended up living towards the end. And I share all that is, is that wasn't what wanted me to get sober. It wasn't the consequences. It wasn't the fact that I was unemployable. I couldn't keep a job. I was committing felony crimes. Um, my family didn't want to talk to me. I, I lived in, I had family in Hawaii and I had family in Georgia and neither one of them wanted to talk to me. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And, um, I was totally alone, and what really happened is I couldn't be me anymore. I just couldn't deal with the guy in the mirror anymore. It, it was just too disgusting, and I really just wanted to die. But it wasn't happening quick enough, and and I don't know if anybody can relate to this. As a kid, I felt the presence of God at different times in my life, and those neighbors that lived next door to us that was able to handle me as a kid, the dad who became a second father to me when my dad was in Nam, three tours of Nam would always mentor me and he would talk about spiritual things. It wasn't a religious thing, but he started planning these things about this thing called the higher power and how the, this higher power worked in our lives and how, and I don't remember everything else. I was a kid, but he planted those seeds. And at times I felt a presence of something there. And so I started reaching out. I thought that I was reaching out to God for a while because I kept kind of going in my mind and maybe even talking out loud like a crazy person that I couldn't do this anymore. And it still wasn't I couldn't do the drinking and drugging. I just couldn't do the lifestyle. And at some point I came to believe that God wasn't in my life anymore because nothing was going my way, nothing was happening and this woman started showing up at this dope house we lived in, and it was a really bad part of town. 
And the guy I was living with lost his legs in an accident and he was suing the police department and he was the drug dealer. And the old story was, the saying was, is, you know, Clint can't run away because he has no legs. So that's why they gave him all the dope to deal. And so, and I lived there or existed in that house. <coughs> Excuse me. The, um, but so Clint told me, he goes, look, that's my mom. And he said, you got to be careful. My mom's an AAA and they brainwash you in AA. So be very careful not to talk to her. Um, but the deal was, is I've been calling out to God and I didn't know that's what I was doing. And I thought God abandoned me. But looking back on it now, that's why 12 step work in my life is so important. Because this woman, and I, and I have a 23 year old daughter right now that's never seen me drunk or high. I couldn't imagine going down to the bluffs or somewhere of that nature and seeing my daughter killing herself doing the shit that we do and not condemning her, not yelling at her. And this woman did that. She didn't condemn me. She didn't tell me we were, we were bad or anything else. She just came and did this wicked thing of making coffee. That's what alcoholics do, right? They get you with the coffee. And we'd have conversations and she was the first person since my neighbor, Mr. Denny, they got me on the inside. And she talked, started talking about these spiritual things, that the same thing Mr. Denny did. I didn't realize it at the time, but that's what it was. And she was 12-stepping me. And long story short, she did my first three steps with me. And we started talking about God. And I told her in one conversation, I, I said, I used to believe, then I kind of believe. And I, I said, then I realized the guys on the street were right. There was no God. And she said, well, you put up the ceiling between you and God, only you can take it down. And one thing she did is, and I didn't know what she was doing because she didn't say you're going to do step one and step two, step three and all these things. But she was doing those steps with me because she was showing up a bunch of times. It wasn't just one time. And she said to me on the third step one day, she said, you know, you're going to have enough one day. You just can't do this anymore, and you'll you'll know when that is. And she goes, when you have that moment, get on your knees and surrender to God. And I said, I don't even know what God to surrender to. And she said, throw out some different concepts. And she was right. That day came, and I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I thought my heart was going to pop. I'm 23 years old laying on this dope house thinking if I get up, my heart's going to pop. And there's a big part of me that said, you know, if I just jump up really quick, my heart will pop, and it'll be done. And then I got to thinking, maybe she's right. Maybe her, and this is why this is important for me today is to work with other alcoholics because we plant seeds. And she planted a seed in my head and I would hear her voice. And the voice I heard was, was God's there and he has a sense of humor. And if you jump up, you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to live through it. You know, and, and I didn't want to be a 23-year-old with a bad heart, right? So I laid there. Anyways, I got enough energy and I got up on my knees and I started throwing concepts with God out there. And all of a sudden I had it and it, nothing was really going on. And, and I'm not going to get into the whole thing, which concept I threw out there. But I, I, I said something and I felt a presence like I was being hugged. Like an overwhelming feeling of loving compassion surrounded me. And that's a burning bush experience. And I'll never forget that. Um, and and then, but prior to that, I, I said to God, and I said, you know, I, I threw out Buddha and I threw out Muhammad and all these things, you know, probably even a tree, you know, you hear about, you know, whatever. But 
So when I threw out the comments, my my saying was, if you're real, prove it to me. Don't let me wake up tomorrow because I don't want to wake up. And then the other thought that came in my mind that's planted in my head is he's probably going to make me wake up. So I said, make it different. So he didn't even wait until the next morning. Things started changing right then and there. Within minutes, things started changing in my life where people came into my life. A guy came to the door that was in sobriety and told me where he went to treatment. So I started that path, and I shared that I had the burning bush experience, but I still used the next day to maintain. But there was something different about myself. And I went into treatment and all these fun things. And, um, you know, I've been talking long about my disease. But, you know, for me, this is important why we need sponsorship. And we need someone to guide us through this because I went to treatment to a halfway house. And they told me to graduate the halfway house, I had to do a fourth and fifth step. And I had, had no clue what that was. And they explained it to me. So I wrote out whatever it was of a four step me just throwing up a bunch of stuff I did a bunch of resentments all these things and I was going to AA meetings at the time but I really didn't have a relationship with anybody in the program as a sponsor and they had me go do it with a priest that kept falling asleep on me and I did my first fifth step and I got a lot of relief and so the next day they gave me a pass like a two-hour pass, and I smoked weed and drank beer. I had no money. I knew the guys were going to go get high from the treatment center. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I went with them because I felt good, and I wanted to reward myself, and that's what we do as alcoholic addicts. That differentiates me from a hard drinker. But I realized then where it was taking me, and I got on my knees, and I surrendered one more time, and, and things went on. But you know, now my first year or two is a struggle. I had a sponsors. I sat with them, but my mind was so fogged. It, I didn't understand everything they told me. And I started changing, and I started getting what they call sober, not just dry. But I didn't see that. I, at, towards the end of three years, I rested on my laurels, and I went back out because I didn't think I had the ninth-step promises in my life. And I had them mixed up. I thought the nine-step promises meant that I'd have the pretty girlfriend, I'd have the nice car, I'd be stable in the job those kind of things. And after I was out a short minute, I realized I had a lot of the promises because I had all the things that talked about. I just couldn't see it at the time. And so I came back into the program and, you know, fast forward a number of years later, I have a phenomenal life today. I could live life on life's terms. I've been through more death, more happiness, more good things in life, more sad things in life sober than I ever did under the influence of alcohol and drugs. But I've had the tools that are given me. And, and I share this is, you know, there's one of us is no longer allowed. He'd always say, you know, not every meal is a banquet. Not every, he, not every day is a bed of roses. But, you know, with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can stay sober and I, I can experience true sobriety. And by being willing <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, for me, when I fully started practicing these principles on all my affairs, that's when life really changed. I had moments of really good sobriety by working with a sponsor, doing step work, all these things, going to meetings, chairing meetings, all the things we're supposed to do. But when I truly got involved in 12-step work, passing on was freely given to me is when my life totally changed. 
And when I started bringing in the home life to my family and practicing these principles, being an honorable man, not waiting 10 minutes to be an honorable man, but being an honorable man in the moment. There's a speaker that talks about that. He says, I can't be an honorable man in 10 minutes from now. There's no 10 minutes. There's only now. There's no yesterday. There's no tomorrow. And when I started living like that, my life changed. My life fell into place for once. And I had the tools to live life on life's terms. And so I have an incredible amount of experience. Excuse me, I got this pollen's killing me. I have a, hold on, I'm taking a drink of water here. I have a huge amount of experience of the beauty of sobriety today. And I share that is, is that's what keeps me sober. It's not the fact that I'll go drink again, is I don't want to give up the experiences that I've had sober. And I'm talking about one minute sitting with somebody that is not going to make it. They're going to be dead and they can't stop using despite their will not to. You know, and I don't save them, but by sitting down and sharing my experience, strength, and hope with them, if it's in the emergency room, if it's in a detox center, if it's in the rooms, then taking them to the ER to get them checked in, all these things that we do, but walking them through the 12 steps and watching them change, and then a year, year or two later have phenomenal lives because they've done this deal, and I didn't get them sober. All I did was my, my primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And as a, a man of this program, my job is help people find a relationship with their God, not give them, you know, I share my God with them, but I don't build a God for them. They build their own God. And by having that experience of watching people become, watching men become men in this program, not just guys, but become true men, true husbands, true fathers, watching women come in and change and become moms, become daughters, you know, become good wives. That's what changes my life and brings in sobriety into my life. And um, and that's a phenomenal part of this program. And, you know, today, and I'll share this, is I've been evicted in double-digit sobriety. I've had gotten some really cool jobs in sobriety. I've lost good jobs. I've gotten really cool friends in this program. And I've watched really cool friends die of this disease. And then, you know, but that's just a part of life. And that's what sobriety is. And, you know, the one thing I learned a long time ago, and not everybody might get this, we, win, we, we become winners when we ring the bell. When we die, we die sober. That's the end. And I'm selfish, and I hate to say this, and I share this a lot. I went to a funeral one time, and I thought it was some woman in the program that I knew, and it wasn't. And I got there, and I didn't know anybody there but maybe one or two people. But she was sober in the program 20-something years. There's over 600 people at this funeral. And they all got up, and they weren't all people in the program. They were people from her work, or church, and pro youth programs, all these things she did. And they shared how, because she was sober, they touched their lives. And 600-some people. And I said, well, okay, she had about 600 people. When I die, I want at least 601 on my funeral. So that's, that's my disease, right? Yeah, I'm competitive. And then shortly after that, I went to a funeral of a friend of mine that died drunk, right? And so there's a huge contrast and difference in that. And, and so that's true sobriety for me today. And I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what keeps me sober today. 
not because I'm worried that I'm going to go get arrested again or whatever. It's the true beauty of this. So if you're new in this, hang on for the ride of a lifetime. I think we're wrapping it up here. So uh, we close on time? Oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. Okay. Keep going? Uh, so I don't know what else to share on that is other than, you know, um, again, you know, and I and sometimes – like I was at a detox meeting last night, and I'll share this, and maybe we'll wrap it up. Is well, what I'd love to hear is the steps. I'd love to hear something about you know steps one, two, and three, uh, the power that lives in those steps. You know, especially for a newcomer uh, that's listening tonight. Um, what could you leave them with? That's a great question, and I think I was talking about that, and I, I thought I did when I was talking about the first three steps in that dope house. Is you know, admitting I was powerless. It doesn't say I admitted I was powerless over alcohol, and I think the first time around is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and that's why I need someone else to point that out, right? Even when I couldn't see it myself. So here's the truth, right? The third tradition says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I still didn't have a desire to stop drinking. I had a desire to stop being me and stop dying on the inside. And I wanted what that woman had, right? And so she was able to share enough of her first step with me that I saw it in my first step. I could see where I was starting to be powerless over alcohol. Like I use this as an example. I just went back to the steps with my sponsor again, and we were talking about it. We had a really cool conversation, and and I was telling. She said, "Tell me some stories of your unmanageability." And so my my you know they powerless over alcohol because I always thought I wasn't powerless over it because I had had a high tolerance. And so, and, and I think Troy's heard this story several times. I had a dope dealer. I had a couple dope dealers. We all have a couple mm -hmm. dope dealers, right? Depending on what part of town. I'm yeah, in. right. <laughs> and I had one that was, you know, it, it, when I was in good shape back in those days, I was 175 pounds, six feet tall. He was six foot five, probably 285, 300 pound dude. And he was the friendliest guy, but he, he also had a reputation of, you don't mess with this guy. And so we had a really good relationship. I'd give him money and he'd give me what I want. <laughs> and he made it, just like that judge, right, made a promise to me that if I did drugs and out, if I came in front of him again, I'd go to prison. This dealer made a commitment to me that if I showed up at his house past midnight ever again, he would just kill me. And he meant it. He'd beat the shit out of me and kill me. And I believed him. And so when I shared that story with my sponsor, how that at 3 o'clock in the morning I'm knocking on his door and the neighbors are freaking out. And the only reason he didn't kill me at the time because the neighbors were outside. They threw packets of dope at me, told me to get out of here. And she's like, isn't that unmanageability? Isn't that powerless, being powerless over something? And and that's and I don't know if that makes sense to the newcomer, but that's being powerless over something. Because I had to go get it, despite my will not to. And my, and my step two has changed over the years, but in the beginning it was I didn't – I didn't know what sanity looked like. She had to tell me what sanity looked like. And she was she told me you guys would teach me what sanity looked like. And so I came to believe that the power of greater myself would restore me to sanity. And I didn't have to understand it. So I did that to us. So that's why I was looking forward to her coming back. Because I started to believe whatever she had in her side would work in me. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that started becoming my second step. I always thought I had to figure out God first and, and like it. 
you know, it was just the fact that there was a power greater than myself that wasn't Doug that can restore me to, or for my case, not restore me to sanity, just show me sanity for the first time. <laughs> this is sanity. That's sanity. Okay, that's what that is. Well, what I like to think is is that, you know, I, I, I get a choice, you know, I get a choice to choose the misery of being a dope fiend and crawling around in that, in that way of life or the mystery of a higher power, a sponsorship, 12 steps, meetings, all that mysterious stuff that I don't know anything about, I get to choose either misery or mystery. The choice is mine. And if I follow you guys, I more than likely will end up happier than I was in misery. Yeah, when I pursue the mystery of God, the mystery of the steps, and the mystery of this program that we are in, recovered in. No. You know, and, and, you know, we were talking about that third step and we were talking about it when you were out of the room was that, you know, when I got on my knees, you know, in that dope house, I was surrendering to a power. I made a decision to do this. But further, you know, the old saying is you got three frogs on a log and one makes a decision to jump off. How many do you have? You still have three. But that action in the third step, we don't talk a lot about as I took the action and got on my knees and surrendered. I basically did the third step prayer and that was me doing my third step. And so I still have to do that. And I share this a lot is I have to understand my first step, my second step, my third step every day. I get on my knees every morning and sometimes I don't do it so well because I got to take that pee, you know, but I try to turn it over. But by doing those prayer and meditation, I'm turning it over, admitting that I'm powerless over alcohol and other su substances, and my life is unmanageable, left up to my own devices. And by getting on my knees in that morning, I'm, I'm believing that a higher power is going to restore me to sanity that day, because I'm not, not always sane. I mean, Troy knows me. There's times I'm freaking still insane. <laughs> and that third part of it, the third step part of it, is when I'm turning it over to him. Right, I'm doing the action of doing that, and sometimes I got to do that through the day, and and when I do those things, it all starts falling into place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, really appreciate you coming through tonight and really sharing your your experience, strength, and hope. You know, um, with all sincerity. You know, I want to I want to thank you. Big shout out to, to Sean C for sitting with us uh, tonight. You know, Doug, if uh, there should be any question as to whether or not uh, recovery is better, you know, I, I, I think we sit as uh, samples and examples uh, just to show that it is better. You know, um, it is much more fun. It is much more pure a life. And uh, I believe a, a much more loving both with self and with others, you know, and I, I, I would, I don't know anywhere else where that can be found. Um, you know, this new life that we've been given, we've been so blessed to receive, uh, it's well worth talking about. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing here at Clean Dreams. We'll be talking about it twice a week. So please join us. If you're listening and you're finding it hard to stay clean and sober, please reach out to us. You can reach us at cleandreams.org and we would be more than happy to, to guide you and, and help you get what we've got.